But I think a lot of it has to do with there's a lack of expectation upon young people to do hard things, and there's an overwhelming boredom. Like, this life is way too easy. It's super boring, and I'm not challenged. And so, you know, when I look back and I think about my boys growing up, I think to myself, I am going to lovingly have monumental expectations of them, and I'm going to keep them on edge with the sense of, like, do hard things. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I'm stoked you've decided to join me on this journey to bring about a massive and positive change in the lives of others. Every week, you're going to join me behind closed doors, where I will introduce you to entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators from a variety of industries to learn how their contributions are impacting the lives of others and how they are having a game-changing impact in the world. Thanks for investing your time with me today. Now, Race for Impact. On today's episode of the Impact Entrepreneur Show, I'm introducing you to my good friend, Ian Utili. His entire entrepreneurial journey has been focused on empowering his clients to leverage the art of branding and the science of technology to create an impact in their respective industries. In many of his adventures, he has found that having a clear, passionate vision and taking strategic risks has led to uncommon success. A few of the things that we cover in today's episodes are how being a 10th generation California resident continues to inspire his entrepreneurial journey, how recognizing and developing the skills and talents at a young age was a game changer for him, and how we should all make an effort to look for the skills and talents in the youth around us and focus on developing those. And he shares a great story about an interview he heard with Mike Tyson, where Tyson said, I was afraid every time I stepped into the ring, but I was less afraid than my competition. And finally, we spent some time talking about the seven principles Ian learned while launching the 76th fastest growing company in America, according to Inc. Magazine. Bust out your pens and paper, take a lot of notes, brace for impact. Hey, this is Mike Flynn, host of the Impact Entrepreneur Show, here with my good buddy, Ian Utili. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show, Ian. Yeah, happy to be here. It's going to be fun. Super excited to have you. We've gone way, way back. Yeah. High school. You know, high school and uh, have seen each other grow and achieve uh, great things in life, especially marrying your wife and then me marrying my wife and having our beautiful families, right? So good. So good. So a question I, I begin each of my episodes with uh, is is one of my favorite questions because I think it gives a little bit of insight in a fun way to, um, to entrepreneurs. And that is, if you could pick any superpower... What would it be and how would you use it? If I could pick any superpower. Well, I am going to give a totally uh, lame answer, and that is Wolverine's <laughs> claws. <laughs> because I just want those claws to come out of my hands. <laughs> and I want to look at them all shiny. And what would I do with them? I would just bring them out to look at them, polish them. And uh, i talk about them. I'd show them off. Uh, mostly three at a time, very rarely one at a time, <laughs> only when somebody cuts me off driving, I'd show one claw at a time. But um, 
you know, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Well, I mean, actually, if uh, if people were to see you, that would totally make sense because you kind of look a little bit like a Wolverine. I mean, the wolver- combination of gorilla and Wolverine, you know. Um, so if you ever shapeshifter, I'd watch out. You I know? could have been one of the villains in the X-Men movie. You know, we were talking um, before we hit the record button about your family history. Yeah. Uh, which goes way, way back in California to 1776, and it's a very entrepreneurial yeah. history. So why don't you tell us a little about who, entrepreneurs that you look up to historically? Yeah. So, you know, I like to talk about the first great entrepreneur of the Silicon Valley, and his name was Lieutenant Moraga. So he was uh, second in command of the Spanish Army, and he uh, came on the boat, landed in Monterey, and uh, spoke with the general that ran the Spanish army. And the general said to him, you know what? You've served well. I want you to go up north and make a name for yourself. So Lieutenant Moraga grabs the priest, uh, 14 men and their wives and children, and uh, jumps on a boat and heads up north and lands in San Francisco. Uh, Very first thing that Lieutenant Moraga did was he started the Presidio, and he really established the Catholic Church there in San Francisco. Uh, He then... Uh, made it a point to become friends with the Indians. And um, he, when he died, uh, the Indians had like a Pope's procession for him. Like he was known as the Spanish, uh, you know, army man that had a heart for the natives and like made it work with them. Um, He was the one that came down South, uh, came into what we now call Silicon Valley or San Jose, looked at it and he called it Guadalupe de San Jose and um, the garden city. And so if you go in the San Jose Monument buildings, you got the big 30-foot, you know, mural of uh, Lieutenant Moraga. So I'm his 10th generation descendant. And so the Moragas, uh, we were down to like one uh, person that lived in the family line six times. So it's funny. The only people I know that are related to him are my children, my brother, right, and my parents, and then a couple cousins, um, wow. but I can't, I've looked and I've looked and I've gone on Facebook and LinkedIn and I've gone on forums and I can't find a single person that ties themselves back to Lieutenant Moraga. About four generations ago, the Moraga family married the Pacheco family and the Moraga family had this really wonderful uh, reputation. The Pacheco family, uh, their reputation was uh, not so great with what happened with them and the uh, Native Americans. And so um, basically those two families came together and they lost California. So <laughs> at one point we had California, and then we lost. I think the Spanish-American War probably has something to do with it as well as their gambling and drinking too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, gambling and drinking den- definitely uh, t- tends to have a negative impact on one's success. Legacy, no doubt yes, about it. and legacy, yeah. But sure. it's still, I'm really uh, grateful that my family's, every single person for generate 10 generations has been born in San Francisco Bay. I feel a, a generational um, calling, burden, uh, purpose uh, in this area. And I just, I love to see, you know, political leaders, business leaders, faith leaders thrive, unite, and do great things together. And oftentimes, I'll be in San Francisco or around the Bay Area, and I'll think to myself, what would Moraga want? Yeah. You know, he came here and he started so many things, uh, founded so many things. And I think to myself, a man that gave up his whole life in Spain, a man that gave up, he could have stuck in the army and been the next general. He gave up so many things to come and, and start what we now get to enjoy. And so I think like, gosh, what would Moraga want, right? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, WWMD. Yeah. MD, yeah. <laughs> what would Moraga do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's very fascinating. I mean, you don't hear too many people who have that kind of a family history. Yeah. Um, 
anywhere, really. I mean, except in like Europe where, you know, everybody goes back 10 generations right. there, you know, right. Kind of exactly. Like, we're such, I mean, I think if, I think here, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you have a, a small minority of people that go back that far yeah. uh, in the United States of America, but most of us are, you know, maybe three generations at most, you know, so right. that's a really fascinating story. And we'll, we'll link to some, some Moraga family history and yeah. show notes that, uh, to provide people a little bit more background. Awesome. Um, man, you've had such an incredible entrepreneurial journey. I mean, with your latest venture with Gorilla Branders, uh, I mean, you've, you've worked with celebrities, you've worked with professional athletes, you've worked with amazing brands, you've worked with celebrity authors, but like, you know, Trent Dilfer, Marielle Hemingway, you've worked with uh, the Big League Impact Group. Uh, I mean, just really fascinating stuff. So, you know, going back though, like, why are you an entrepreneur? You know, what, what, maybe a better question is, what was the impact moment that kind of set you on this trajectory? Yeah, I think there's impact moments. Um, I think as a young man, I realized that when I spoke, uh, there was a authority by uh, people listening to me. And when I did something, there was um, a sense of people followed me. So as a young man, you think to yourself, I think there, there's a sense of like, this is weird. You know, I mean, everybody's the same, right? So why do people follow me? Or why is it that when I speak, I you know, I uh, capture the heart and attention of people. So I, I think the first impact moment for me is being a young man and realizing that I had something that was unique about me that caused me to be influential when I spoke and influential when I led mm-hmm. and that people listened when I spoke and people followed when I led, um, which isn't always great because I didn't always have great things to say and I didn't always lead the right way. I didn't always do the best thing. So uh, that includes, you know, things that were very painful for people, things that I spoke that came across as very authoritative or dominating or intimidating um, when I used this gift or this ability for bad or uh, being, you know, a druggie and a drug dealer and getting arrested and I would lead down this wrong path as a young person during a period of my time, time of my life and people would follow me down that path or... So it's, it can be used for good or bad, right? It's a, it's a strength. It's a muscle. And, and how do you use that strength? Mm-hmm. Um, another impact moment was when I started companies. So I would, I would always have a job or two, and then I'd start things. I, would just, I just kept starting new things constantly. And I think there was this thought in my head, like, I just get so bored at a job or I get so bored at school and I just want to always start things. So I, st- I thought to myself, you know, maybe I'm supposed to start things. You're like, maybe, maybe I'm a fire starter. Like, and I started seeing like, you know what, in really hard situations where it's like raining in business, I just have this ability to like start a fire. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think over time, I feel like I've become somewhat unemployable unless I had the right uh, role. So even if I wanted to get a job, it had to be very, very specific for me to really make it work. So I have to be an entrepreneur. I have to figure out how to make a living and provide for my family and provide for employees that are counting on me and, and those types of things. I would say the greatest impact moment, there's lots of experiences through my you know adolescence, teens, and 20s. But in, in my mid-20s, I went to something called the master's program. And so Bob Shank started the master's program. Uh, Bob Shank, I would consider to be probably have the most authoritative voice in my life outside of my dad. And so Bob is a guy that has really um, spoken uh, very uh, critical, but in a loving way 
I, you know, like when I'm feeling great about myself and something's going great, like he'll say something that just kind of brings me down on my feet. Like, okay, you know what? That's a good word. I, I need to Grounded. Take, yeah, he really grounds me. And so I've gone through his three-year training program called the master's program. Um, with him for three years. Then I went through a second round that I helped uh, launch in the Silicon Valley, uh, a year and a half with Steve Stenstrom and then a year and a half with Brian Dowd. So I would say that the materials of the master's program, Bob himself, Steve Stenstrom, Brian Dowd, those, that program and those guys have made a massive impact because they made me believe that it was okay to be confident as a leader that I could harness this power and authority I have in my in my voice, in my words, my enthusiasm, and that I could use it for good. But of anything and anybody, nothing's made a bigger impact than my father, Gary Utili. Uh, he started a company in 1976, construction company. My mom's been a real estate agent. They've made a living their whole marriage. Um, and they've been thrifty and they've been mindful. I remember, you know, they used to, they did everything they could to buy their first home. They wore, they had blankets instead of a heater, right? They, we, we never went out to eat. When we went out to eat for a birthday, we only got water. I mean, they just really cared about building a life together and now watching their life as they've built it together for 40 years and seeing all that they've developed and all the great habits they've uh, created and all the things that they've handed to me and my brother, I have one younger sibling, Kevin. And so, I think that my dad's been the greatest mentor, um, certainly by what he said to me, but even more so by the way he's lived, mm -hmm. the way he's been a husband to my mom, the way he's been a father to me and my son and my brother, and the way he's been a grandfather to yeah. my sons and my brother's sons. And just the business, I've seen him hire, uh, fire, you know, well over 100 people that have worked for him and, and come through the revolving door of a small business. Um, I've seen the way he treats his uh, clients. I've seen the way that he treats his subcontractors. And I've just learned so much yeah. by, um, he just is a righteous dude. Yeah. You know, I, He's just a righteous dude. And, and we'll, we'll talk more about mentorship and the importance of mentorship in a moment. And I can definitely attest to the the great relationship that you and your dad have uh, with each other. It's It's pretty cool to watch. And Amazing, also that your parents have been married for forty years. Yeah, huge. Were they like twelve when they got married, or <laughs> yeah. no, no, they're sixty-two and sixty-four? So they were young, but not that yeah. young. You know, the couple things that I, I want to touch on. Um, one thing that you just mentioned that that's an important part of your story, which is kind of your wayward path a little bit. And and you know, what are what are the, some of the things that you learned during that period of time that have impacted you and, and kind of revealed a little bit of maybe your the nature of who you are and 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 then put a positive spin on how you can apply that energy into your entrepreneurial endeavors, into your role as a husband, into your role as a father and a friend and a brother. Mm, yeah, that's great. You know, I think that with every gift, ability, strength, however you want to label something, I think that it can be used for good or bad. Always, right? And, and you can go through seasons where it veers in and out. I think high-capacity people, and I'm grateful to feel as though I'm a high-capacity person, I think we get bored easily. And there's a tendency between junior high school and high school that we end up, like school is not very intriguing. Uh, you know, being in school, the teachers are not really captivating our heart. The materials we're going through are not very intriguing. So unless you're totally locked into sports, there's so much free time. So your options are like, you can, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Maybe you can become like, uh, get into video games or get into like other clubs or science projects. 
um, it's very hard for a young person to start a business or to do something productive. Like, like people don't expect young people to do hard things. So a high capacity person that has no expectations of doing hard things upon their life, they only have a few options, right? They can excel in school, but it's not very challenging. They can excel in sports, but that's not always the path that you want to take. You could find some sort of like healthy thing, like science or things like that, but it's not really a, a clear path. And so oftentimes, high capacity people, they just get so bored, they just uh, seek just immediate pleasure or, you know, seek to kind of be numb so they don't feel so bored all the time. Um, so for me, I think that my draw towards like drugs and things like that were specifically that I just felt like my mind is going a million miles an hour. I'm not challenged. Nobody expects hard things from me. And everything I put my hand to, it just feels like, you know, it, it loses uh, that, that, you know, shininess quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I think drugs were an easy way to like turn my brain off, numb myself and not feel um, so intense all the time, which I, I think was the draw to it. Now, the problem is that there's a consequence with that, right? The consequence is you're doing something illegal. So I got arrested, you know, I got put on probation. I hurt my parents and family and friends uh, through that. And then you make bad decisions because you're not sober, you're not sober minded. So you start making decisions that only somebody that's, you know, like in that head space would do stealing money and, 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 you know, being violent and, and things like that. So, but I think a lot of it has to do with, there's a lack of expectation upon young people to do hard things. And there's an overwhelming boredom. Like this life is way too easy. It's super boring and I'm not challenged. And so, you know, when I look back and I think about my boys growing up, I think to myself, I am going to lovingly have monumental expectations of them and i'm going to keep them on edge yeah. with the sense of like do hard things yeah like go make things happen yeah you know i i think that there is a and i'm later this month i'm interviewing um uh, a guy named cameron harold who's the co former co-founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK and wrote, yeah. wrote double double and he runs a company called back pocket coo now but one of the things he talks about is like the education system and how it really is kind of failing a lot of uh, kids because, you know, they, ha they have those tendencies where they're like, go, go, go. They're easily distracted. They're, you know, they're not necessarily engaged in the quote unquote traditional education program. And so they get labeled as having ADD or ADHD or some sort of a, you know, Tourette syndrome or whatever it might be. Uh, and his whole point of view. And he was one of those kids, you know, uh, he says he was one of those kids and, and his whole philosophy is that no, those kids for the most part have, those are, those are, um, indicators of entrepreneurship. And, you know, if, if there was a program in the education system that took a kid like, like Ian in high school and recognized that, they have all of this great potential to create and to, you know, do something big because something small is not going to fulfill you. How awesome would that, that be, have been then or be now to have a program like that that harnesses this entrepreneurial energy? And I think that there's a movement kind of that's being shaped around that and kind of now grabbing some of those kids and, uh, you know, it's been referred to as the unschool kind of movement. I think Peter Thiel it has launched it. But 
I, I think that that would apply to any child. And, and here's, here's an example. There's a new movement with homelessness right now. And the movement with homelessness is that um, feeding them, housing them, is, is putting a Band-Aid on a, on a real issue. And the issue is they don't have a purpose to live most of the time. They don't have a reason to go get a job. They don't have a reason to work hard. They don't have a reason to make a living and make a family and go back to their family and get sober. Like, the reason is gone, and that's why they've given up to the extent that they're on the street. And so there's a new move right now with um, some people that are now taking homeless people, taking them out sailing, taking them to triathlons, and basically teaching them how to sail or teaching them how to do a triathlon. Triathlon. Oh, interesting. What's the name of that movement? I can't remember, but oh. it's local, and and, oh. and it's really positive because what's happening, instead of feeding them and housing them, they're just taking them to these marathon and triathlon and mud runs, and then they're wanting to be sober so they can be more athletic. And then they're, like, realizing, oh, my gosh, like, there's something about running they and have swimming. And yes, they, and they find purpose, and then they go get themselves a job. They give themselves housing. They feed themselves. <laughs> See, I believe hmm. that I have had— tremendous unfair advantages, right? I've, my family's lived here for 10 generations. My parents are married, stable, sober, uh, thrifty, work their ass off and have made things happen and are seen like with a, abundant honor by spiritual business and, you know, any community you can think of. And I'm a white male. So like, I am so unbelievably advantaged so I don't think I'm special. I don't think that I'm like top 1%. I think I'm high capacity, but I think pretty much anybody would be high capacity if they had a great family environment and were, you know, a man that's white in the Silicon Valley. It's like totally unfair, right? Right. I personally think whatever program this unschool program is, the, the issue that I'm going to have is if they just try to take these advantaged people— that are already labeled as smart. What I'd love for them to do is take the disadvantaged people that are labeled as dumb or slow learners and help those folks because there's nothing that keeps anybody from great success, Yeah. right? I have a lot of advantages and I'm trying to do the best I can to be responsible with what I feel I've been blessed by. But I think that anybody can achieve great things. And so like the homeless thing is a great example of you can take a great system and help anybody with it if you can help them find a purpose. With Unschool, i love for, for me to see in the future Peter Thiel and these really smart, incredible people that are world changers find ways that not only do they go serve the kids of the 1%, but they go serve the down-and-out bottom, you know, the, the people that really are not told they're champions yeah. and bring the champion out in them because anybody can yeah. do it. Anybody can be a successful And, and, I, and I think that I, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about the program, but I— from what I remember hearing about it, it is like open to mm. to everybody. That's awesome. And and what what it, what his specific uh, program is? It's it's an entrepreneurship program. So people actually submit ideas and compete um, for funding. That's awesome. You know, and so you've got kids that are in high school that are uh, you know submitting projects and ideas and creating stuff and and you know, launching these companies with him as their That's support, awesome. you know, so, so I mean, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, it, in the, in your entrepreneurship journey, your journey of being an entrepreneur, I, I noticed that um, on LinkedIn, you had completed the strength finders, the entrepreneurial strength finders questionnaire. And I mean, the, it, it like fits you to a T, you know, I've known you for, for many years, 
uh, you know, being a creative thinker, risk taker, relationship builder, definitely determined. You definitely seek knowledge. Uh, you definitely are independent and, and business minded. One thing that kind of threw me off a little bit, and because I've always uh, have f- looked at you as a very confident person, mm. is that that wasn't. I, I thought that would have definitely been like top two or three dominant trait. But in the in the Strength Finders questionnaire, it was some, it, you're still confident, but it's something that that it said that you have to purposefully apply. You have to go get go get it. It just doesn't like naturally come uh, come to you. Is is why don't you talk a little bit about the confidence uh, trial that entrepreneurs face in in their journey? Well, it reminds me of a documentary that just came out about Mike Tyson. It's so, you're, on, so you're 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 like Mike Tyson? No, I'm give, not like give, Mike Tyson. Give us your, give us your best Mike Tyson impersonation. <laughs> no, that uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that uh, to him or to me. So um, there's this new movie called Champs. It's on Netflix's documentary, and it's really meaningful. And uh, it's Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, and the other dude's called The Executioner. And Mike Tyson talks about confidence in the ring, and basically what he said is, I was really, really afraid every time I got in the ring. I was so afraid and I was so scared, but I was less afraid than they were. And the whole world feared him. Now, at some point he became so arrogant and so uh, proud that he literally would think, he said, I would think to myself, I'd sit down, I'd think to myself, I could beat 7 billion people in a fist fight. There's not a single person that I can't beat up. And he's like, and that thought really messed with me and made me, uh, I did made a lot of really bad decisions. And he, it's a very, very, it's a very cool movie. But the thing that really struck me is how afraid he was every time he got in the ring. He's like, I was so scared of getting hurt. I was so scared of getting beat up. I was so scared they were going to get me, but they were more afraid of me than I was of them. And I don't feel a lot of fear, but I think that I'm not like, I may not be a hundred percent on the confidence meter, but I think that most people just lack confidence. And so even if my confidence level is like mid or, or higher, it's still, it seems as though I am like the most confident person to a lot of my friends, but a lot of it has to do with me tying into my risk taking, mm-hmm. right? So I've taken greater risks than most people, right? I mean, I've, I've risked my uh, my finances, my reputation, my business several times over. I mean, there's been so many times where I'm like, well, worst case scenario, I got to start all over again. And I've done this consistently over and over. And I think that that risk taking and then my, and then the lack of confidence that most people feel has caused me to have this impression like I'm a really confident person. I don't feel a lot of insecurity. I, I, I just think that pretty much if I had to say like, the, the, the thing in my head is the wind is at my back. Everybody says yes, and all I do is win. Now, if you think about me saying that, the wind is at my back. Do I have anything to do with the wind? No. I have nothing to do with the wind, right? I just recognize the wind is at my back. Everybody says yes. Can I force somebody to say yes? No. no they choose to say yes, um, and all I do is win. Like, I'm just, I'm declaring a celebratory like funny line Hmm. that says, because the wind is at my back, which I have nothing to do with, because everybody says yes, which I'm just blessed by people wanting to come on board and join what I'm doing or, or become a client or become an employee. 
all I do is win is the end result. But none of that really has anything to do with me. Like I can't, I can't make the wind go a certain direction. I can't force somebody to do anything they don't want to do. So when I say all I, when I say that line, because I've said that a lot of times in my life, kind of like a funny, lighthearted thing, like wind's at my back. Everybody says, yes, all I do is win. Like it's this kind of mantra, like to encourage my own heart. I don't think it's because I'm so great. I think it's like, gosh, I don't know. I'm just a Santa Cruz dude that just happens to have had some pretty cool things happen in business and life. A lot of it is associated to my willingness to take massive risks. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. You know, I think that as I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm listening to you tell this story and, and kind of talk about confidence. I'm I'm thinking back to a an interview I heard from Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach, yeah. where he talked about the difference between courage and confidence. And and I'm not gonna I'll link to it in the show notes because I don't want to butcher the way he he phrases it. But you are a very courageous person, and you have to have courage before confidence. You know, I think I think the difference is that, you know, if if you're in a battle, you you know, courage is getting up, moving forward, not knowing whether you're going to get knocked down. Mm. You know. Yeah. Confidence is is getting up, moving forward, knowing you're not going to get down. I think that's like the key differentiator. And and Dan Sullivan, who I admire and would love to have as a guest at some point on the show, gives a real amazing kind of explanation about the the two. So I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. You know, earlier you were talking about um, mentorship and your dad, um, but maybe you could tell us a story about a mentor who's impacted your life in, in the, in, on your as an entrepreneur mm. and maybe has helped you in the way that you influence others. Hmm. You know, I think I've been around some really wonderful people. And if I had to say the key to my success in life, if I took it from a logical perspective and not a faith-oriented perspective, just like logical, I'd say it it would have to do with the fact that I've been so committed to mentorship. I've had some mentors that have stuck with me for 10, 15, 20 years. Obviously, my dad my whole life. Um, And some mentors that have come and gone through seasons. But it's been a commitment of my life. And let me, I think the thing that would be most helpful is if I explain how I see mentorship. Sure, yeah. So here's how I see mentorship. You find somebody that's a peer or higher than you. And it's okay for them to be a peer. And you position them in a way so that they can start speaking into your life about something or some things. Then you make a deliberate decision to not nitpick their life or even nitpick if they are applying what they're telling you because that's not their role. Their role is not to show you necessarily how to live. Sometimes their role is just to declare what they know to be true, right? Like I struggle with my health and my weight. I've always been a big guy. 
And, um, or most of my life, I'm big. Sometimes I get down real lean and mean, you know. Lean, mean, fat machine. Well, when I think about, you know, being Wolverine. Wolverine and <laughs> So I know how to lose weight. Right? Hugh Jackman takes after you. It's not the other way around. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I know what it takes, how to eat, how to work out. Um, I've, I've been very fit, lean, athletic before. And I could teach anybody how to lose weight. But if they looked at me today, they could easily say, well, dude, you're heavy. Like you're, you're not super fit. I can't see your abs right now. And so, but that doesn't take away the fact that I know how they can lose weight. Well, same thing with mentorship. When I ask somebody to speak into my life. Wisdom versus knowledge. Yeah. When I ask somebody to speak in my life, I'm saying, I am honoring you to impart to me something that you know that I don't know, or to speak something in my life that I need to hear right now. And so one thing is not to judge them on whether or not they apply it as much as to listen to what they have to say. And second is to do what they say. If you do not follow the advice of your mentor, they are not a mentor. Hmm. They're, and and they, will, they will feel disrespected. They will become, you know, upset. And that what I constantly say to myself is, okay, I've positioned this person or these people to have an authoritative voice in my life in this area of business, this area of my marriage, this area as a father, this area as a spiritual man, this area with my finances, whatever it may be. And I say, this person or these people have an authoritative voice in my life. And because of that, I'm not going to nitpick them as a person, whether or not they are following through perfectly on this. I'm going to take it as this is authority speaking about this area, and I'm going to do what they say. Yeah. And if it doesn't work out, well, then they have some fault. And if it works out great, then they get legacy from that. Right. So, so much about honoring a mentor is to give that mentor a chance to be right in your life mm -hmm. and then to run like hell to prove them right so that they can look at your life and say, legacy, man. Yeah. Legacy right there. My fruit is growing on that tree. Right. Like I want people that have been around my life to look at my life as a tree and say, my fruit's growing on his tree. And then I want to encourage their soul so they go forth and mentor more people. Yeah. Right. So that's my view of mentorship. Yeah, no, I think that's really... I appreciate that because a very authentic uh, view of, of mentorship and the importance of mentorship and the impact of mentorship. And, and I feel very much the same way. And I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're looking to someone to be a mentor, it's because you've seen them like succeed in that particular area, either currently or in the past. And it's not their responsibility to make sure you're doing what they're doing. If you're, if, what they tell you to do, rather. If, if, you're, if you ask somebody to be a mentor— and they provide you with the advice, they might check in with you and, and make sure you're, you're doing what you said you would do. And if you're not, then they're just going to you know, stop providing the, the advice because you're not listening and it's not important to you or whatever it might be. Just being funny for a second, what kind of fruit would you have uh, on the tree, though? Would you want to be like a peach? Or no, that's like funny. <laughs> fruit of my tree? Yeah. Uh, would, it be I, a mul would, would it be a multi-fruit tree? Well, is that even possible? Would you be fruity? Yeah, I'd be. I'd be very <laughs> fruity. You know, this reminds me. I was um, with Bob Shank a week ago, founders of the Masters Program, um, and we were spending a couple of days together. And I was telling him about my vision for 2016. I have shared this vision for this year with dozens and dozens of people, and almost everybody's response is like, "That's so amazing," or. I'll drop everything and do that with you. Or I've never heard anything like that before, but it's all like, wow, or can I be involved? Hmm. Bob was the first person to say this. He says, wow, I'll give you a call at the end of December and see how that went. 
<laughs> and that's like that's the voice of authority in my life, wow. right? Because it's not about Bob being impressed that I have this great vision for this year. Right. It's about Bob saying, so that's what you're saying? You're saying that's what's going to happen in life? That's what this year's going to look like? I'll call you the end of December. I'll hold you accountable. Let's see what you say then. Yeah. And see, that's like that is the voice of an authoritative mentor. It doesn't just slap you on the ass, pat you on the head, and tell you everything's going to be okay, but says, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. Let's see how you do. Now, see, that was just a five-second phrase that Bob said to me that's been sticking with me all week. Mm -hmm. And I will literally think of what Bob said all year long and wait for his call at the end of this year. So what is the 2016 vision? It's too long for this for this yeah. radio show, but um, watch and see what happens this okay. year. Okay, well, maybe in December I'll, I'll call you and I'll <laughs> exactly. you'll be on another guest on the podcast and we'll yeah. talk about, we'll talk about like how awesome it was, yeah. you know? Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and, uh, and maybe if you write about it, I'll link to it on my great. blog. That'd be great. So, yeah. so we could share with all the readers and listeners. Now, um, late last year, you wrote a really brilliant article on LinkedIn about the seven principles you learned launching Inc. Magazine's 76th fastest-growing company. First of all, congratulations on, on that accolade. That's quite an achievement. And maybe you can spend a little bit of time uh, going into some of those principles. You don't necessarily have to cover all of them, but maybe the ones that uh, you can cover all of them if you want. But if there's three or four that really just stick out to you, um, share however whatever way that you, that yeah. you want to want So to do a couple that. things. First, uh, 76 in the nation, it's a private companies that applied to Inc. Magazine. So I imagine there's a tremendous number that are growing faster than Kukui, the company that uh, I helped start with Ryan Wilmot, 2010 out of his house. But we're the fastest growing company in San Jose. So for me, like that was the ultimate, right? Like 10 generations ago, Lieutenant Moraga comes and found San Jose. 10 generations later, his descendant uh, gets to start a company. WWMD. Yeah, exactly. So that was cool. Uh, second, I want to uh, challenge uh, Aaron and Orion from LifeAid to beat that number. So right here, right now on this podcast, I am challenging the team at LifeAid to beat 76. Nice. Um, I'd like to see a Santa Cruz company. I think they're on track. I think they're... I think they got it in the bag. Yeah. So I'm just throwing out the the challenge just for competitive juices to flow. Yes. Yeah, so Can I you say that in your best macho man Randy Savage throwdown voice? You know, my my voice, I don't do voices, bro. I don't do voices. <laughs> I, I can talk loud, I can talk rough, but it's <clears throat> it's still just my voice. Uh and I'm certainly not gonna challenge them as though they're not gonna make it. I'm just saying you guys got it. Uh I'm just throwing it out there for everybody to hear that I think life aid will beat Kikui uh, in this upcoming magazine. So, you know, hey, let's talk about this article I yes. wrote. You know, this is an interesting article. I'm actually going to say something that you may not expect. I wrote the first version of the article, and I linked to the employees that are still at Kikui. Because I, I helped start the company with the founder, Ryan Wilmot, founder and CEO, visionary. He was the brain. I was the mouth, right? Um, and... And we started in Adam's house 2010. I helped recruit the first couple dozen employees, built it to 2013. We did like a million dollars uh, SaaS revenue, which is a really big deal when I left. I, But I haven't been there for two and a half years. So when I wrote this article, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to celebrate Kikui. And I wanted to share some things that I had learned my, my time there and after leaving in reflection. And then I kind of tagged all the people that I said are still there and thanked them at the end. What happened was I got some negative feedback on the article. And what it was is I it ends up being that I hurt 
some of the folks that are there at Kikui, uh, some of the folks felt like, you know, gosh, you're writing this article as though you built the company, but you haven't been here for half the time. Like you were there for the first half, you haven't been here for the last half, but the article comes across like, why aren't you thinking? And which is fine. Like I just wasn't really sensitive. So it's funny. I went back in and I kind of rewrote the beginning of the article yeah, yeah. just to declare like, Hey, like I helped start a fire and man, I'm so glad I did. And I was a little part of something huge. And I, you know, honored Ryan who founded it and our f- first clients and the employees that have made it happen. They're still there toiling to make it a success today. So in this interview, I should make sure I declare, gosh, I am so proud of the team at Kikui that took us from uh, what I left was just like a, a exploding idea that seemed to be taking ground and actually people liked our product and people want to come work for us. And now it's like this really legit company. Um, and I'm really grateful for the folks that are there. You know, there were seven things that I did learn and I tried to break them down so that they could be applied. And I also talked in the article about like what I've learned since leaving Kikui. Uh, the first thing is don't let your job define you. So while I was at Kikui, um, I was, when it, right before I left, I was working 14 hours a day. Um, I had recruited an incredible guy that's now the CEO today, Todd Westerland, uh, just a, a champion in our industry, uh, both in software and auto repair. And I had brought on just some incredible talent. And I, all I did was just, I just was excited and telling about it and they got attracted and came, right? So awesome. Uh, Mike Giblin, who's also from Santa Cruz, uh, president of the company. And then, um, you know, some of the other founding employees that have been really vital. And so it, it's interesting, as I look at my role, I worked 14 hours a day, you know, five days a week or so. And uh, I just, first one there, last one to leave often. And I just, I was so invested in that company. And then it was pretty abrupt when I left. So when I left, it was kind of tied to me having an Achilles tendon rupture. And I could no longer drive from Santa Cruz to Silicon Valley hmm, an hour drive each way. And my uh, the CEO and founder, uh, my you know my, the guy that we started out of his house, he basically came to me and said, hey, listen, you've done your greatest contribution. Not that you can't do greater contributions, but a lot of what you would do from here would be learning on the job. Like we've now gone from startup to established corporation and you've attracted greater talent that can take your job and do better than you can without you being here. And what would you think about leaving now and having this as legacy and moving on to your next thing? Now, that was a little bit difficult for me because there's a sense of like, gosh, I like I have a 10-year vision to be here. But we worked it out so that I could leave and I think that was a really pivotal moment where I thought to myself, you know what? If Kikui defined me, I would be so completely devastated and um, I would feel like my life was taken. But it didn't define me, right? My, my faith defines me. My family defines me. And uh, what I can contribute to whatever I put my hand to today defines me. So that was, the first, huge, that yeah. was the first point was don't let your, your job define you. The second is find a trustworthy partner. You well, know? I, just real quick, Please. I, I just think it's, it's a little bit ironic that you had an Achilles mm. heel yeah. issue. And like you hear that, you constantly hear that phrase, oh, that's his Achilles that's his heel. heel. Right. You know? So it, it's really interesting that um, for a lot of people, their pride and their their definition of success is their Achilles heel. You know, and, and here that was a great uh, foundational principle that you shared yeah. where don't let those kinds of things define who you are because you're bigger than that. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, that's that's a good observation. I 
I realized recently that I've had three years on, three months off, and I've done this now four times. So in 2007, I took three months off of life. I, I was at AT&T from 2003 to 2007. I helped AT&T transition from Yellow Pages paper book to yellowpages.com. I was involved in the selling of websites and AdWords and Yahoo and all the different digital elements, uh, not only doing that myself, but also training some of the folks uh, that were there on that. And um, then I stopped in 2007. I took three months off with just my wife. And then we started a, a nonprofit organization that was a band called Take No Glory. And we ran hard with Take No Glory for three years, like just nonstop. Then I took three months off in 2000, the end of 2010 to rejuvenate. And, and then I started Kukui at the end of 2010 after a three-month break. And I did that for three years. Had my Achilles tendon rupture, took three months off to heal and get ready for what was next. And then I started Gorilla Branders. And I did that for about three years. And then I, I've taken the last three months off. So I built Grill Branders until Thanksgiving 2015 and then wound down all of our contracts and placed, uh, helped place a lot of our employees at either other partner agencies, like our friend Doug Ferris at Ghost Hand Productions, you know, Aaron, our media director is there. And then I don't know if you know Gary Herman at Jabico, the development place, but Nish and Aaron and, uh, sorry, Anthony are there. So and then Raymond went and worked for our largest client, right? So you know these guys. Yeah, yeah. But what we did was he kind of uh, methodically and respectfully wound Gorilla Branders down at the end of last year so that I could take some time off and do another three-month sabbatical, which I just have finished. And I think that there's a lot to be said for uh, taking time with your family. But also I've been questioning, like, why is it that I get to a point after a few years and I'm ready for like this massive rest season and thinking through like, can I go five or 10 years without taking a break? And, uh, or is this just a pattern that I need to accept? The other thing that I mentioned in the article that is interesting is um, find a trustworthy partner. So when I built Take No Glory, my wife was my partner and I built the whole entire organization around her and her gifting. Uh, with Kikui, the whole organization was built around the CEO, Ryan Wilmot and his gifting. Uh, Gorilla Branders, uh, we ended up building that organization around Raymond St. Martin and his gifting as a brand expert. And so I've worked hard to find people that are geniuses, like my wife with music and Ryan with technology and Ryan with branding, and then build companies with them around their genius. Mm. And so I just think, gosh, if you're doing that for a partner you don't trust or a partner you don't love, that sure would be a bummer. Because um, I've often poured my life into uh, these businesses that are built around folks. The third point was sell. Don't seek an investment or a loan, just sell. You know, sales basically solve everything. You could spend more time trying to get a loan or investment than you could just going and closing deals and onboarding new clients. And my personal opinion is that, you know, there's enough prospects out there that will trust you with their money and trust you to build a product around them that you can launch a company. Many times you can launch a company without having to take on investment and basically you know, try to sell off an idea before it's even proven. Uh, so we did that at Kikui. We didn't have an uh, investor until, you know, uh, when we were already proven. And then it was kind of a celebrity investor. It was our largest client. He brought us to a bunch more of his peers. Uh, so it was a different type of investment that was very small, uh, you know, dollar amount. It wasn't like this massive VC thing or even a big angel investment. And it was just private. And then at Gorilla, we never took any investment money. Um, we never took a loan. We never had a line of credit, right? We just basically, we bootstrapped. That's it. We just bootstrapped. Uh, the fourth thing was uh, be your customer's partner, not a vendor. Now, a lot of people will say, I'm your partner. 
I'm going to treat you like a partner. And I say like, well, whatever, dude, Uh, unless you really truly put your client first. And if you can't say, you know what, I'm willing to sacrifice, my business will sacrifice to make sure that the client is put first, then you're not really a partner, but it goes both ways. And what I mean by that is you can only partner with a client or, or a vendor or whatever that role is, if they are willing to tolerate and be gracious with your mistakes, mm-hmm. right? So our first clients at Kikui or at Gorilla or even other experiences, we treated them way better than our signed agreement, right? We, we over-delivered. We did all we can to really be their partner and put them first. However, we made tremendous mistakes consistently. Things would go wrong. Things would, they'd be let down. But because we treated them like a partner, they treated us like a partner too. And so they were gracious towards our mistakes. And I think that you need to be partnered with your clients, partnered with your vendors, even partnered with your employees, which is my fifth point. Be generous to employees with equity and bonuses. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to do equity. It's kind of a Silicon Valley thing. I mean, I know it's worldwide, but you don't have to do equity. You can just do bonuses, but make sure that the folks that you recruit to your team feel like they are part of the team, that they're owners in it. Now, they don't have to have equity or stock agreements. They could, but even just like a bonus structure, like, hey, everybody's going to share the profit if we're successful or, or both. But the point is that you're generous with your employees and you really are making them feel like this is mine. Like, this is my thing. I'm building my company uh, here. And I feel like that the folks at Kikui had that, the folks at Gorilla had that as well. Uh, the sixth thing was recruit the right people during the right time. Now, this is the hardest thing. When you start a company and you recruit your first dozen or so employees, uh, oftentimes they're working for a very minimal wage, you know, even folks that can make tremendous amounts of money. I mean, I've had somebody that made, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that was willing to start at minimum wage, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, why would they do a thing like that? Because they, they want to be there to start the company, to, to, to launch it. Um, we've had a lot of people stay consistently underpaid and then, you know, compensated with stock and whatnot. Now, here's the difficult part. Um, and then me, right? Like, I usually, when I start a company, either I'm not making any money or I'm making one-tenth or one-fifth of what I would be worth on the market. So, it goes all around. Now, the right phase for company employment, this is where it's tough. When you start a company, it feels like family. But it's really hard to fire family. Right. Or not just firing uh, because it, it usually happens through attrition or it usually happens because you overhired. And now here's the tough part. You overhire and now all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh, we have a, a cash crunch. We're going to have to lay off 5 or 25% of our staff. The hardest part is going to your founding employees and saying, I'm sorry, we're so grateful for you, but there's no longer a place here for you. Right. And for them to know like, dude, I was here in the very beginning and you're going to keep this guy or this gal that have only been here for two months, but see this guy or this gal that have only been here for two months, like they were actually hired for their role. Like they are the right fit long-term. They're the ones that can actually take it to the next level where the founding employees are perfect to start the company, not necessarily perfect to take it for the long haul. That goes back to your first point. No doubt. Don't let your job define you, but it's very difficult, right? It's very difficult because, because there's this element as a founder 
where I feel like they're my nephew, niece, or cousins, right? I don't, I don't feel like there's like a fatherly type of role in business, but I do feel like there's a, a family type of role, right? right? And so it's hard when you onboard these folks and then ultimately leave. The last point, and that's because I'm a branding guy, was live your brand. You know, when I was at Kikui, I wore these Kikui nuts. Kikui is like, a, a, if you go to Hawaii, they put flowers around a gal's right. neck and they put nuts around a guy's okay. kukui nuts. I was, I was going to ask what kukui was. Yeah, kukui means enlightened. Okay. Because when you take those nuts and you crack them open, there's oil that's a, a glow-in-the-dark oil. And the kukui tree mm. is the national tree in Hawaii. And so uh, these kukui nuts, I would wear them around my neck, <laughs> right? And everything I did was kukui. kukui. I was the kukui guy, right? Uh, when I left kukui, that ended. And now, You're like the guy Kawasaki of kukui. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now with Gorilla, you know, I— made my beard look like the Gorilla logo. I wear glasses like the Gorilla logo. I try to embody the 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 spirit of what we created at Gorilla Branders. I have seven Gorilla Branders t-shirts. I rotate through them. I wear Gorilla Branders <laughs> shirts every day. And there's definitely a sense of like, I have become the Gorilla Branders. And Gorilla Branders was certainly a reflection of me as well. Um, but there's a sense of like, gosh, I've learned the power of living your brand. You know, even with my wife, with our music, Take No Glory, there was definitely a sense that we lived that brand of being unknown, of being anonymous, of not making much of ourselves, and of letting the music be the star, the star, not my wife, not the band. Um, and so just living your brand, like, like being faithful to live that out. So those are my seven points. You know, I thought it was fun to be able to share them with folks. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I think that they're tremendously valuable and, and practical and, and, and whether you're running a business or whether you're just looking at, you're an employee in a, in a, in a company or you're getting ready to start a business. Those are things that, that you can take and apply to really any, any area of your, of your life, you know? You can tweak them, you know, uh, but but they're really practical and, and easily adoptable. So thank you for for sharing that. We will link to that yeah, article and, and share it on on uh, the show notes and and on the um, the page. You know, kind of piggybacking off of that though, you know, maybe transitioning. What what are some questions that entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs should be asking themselves on a daily basis? Maybe as it relates to those principles or or. Um, any area of entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly tie them back to these, right? You could say, what defines me? Who am I partnered with? You know, am I seeking an investment or clients, right? What am I doing for my employees or partners, right? Am I living my brand? I mean, you could, you could apply these questions. Sure. But, you know, I think the real question is, as an entrepreneur desire to be an entrepreneur, a real entrepreneur arrives on shore and the boat's in the water. A real entrepreneur sets the boat on fire. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that arrive on shore and have a safety net. And all that they're doing is they're keeping themselves from doing whatever it takes to be successful. And then they, they say, well, that didn't work. Right. But it does work. Right. It works if you are committed to living and dying for it to work. And even if you quote unquote fail, it still worked. Like um, you still have these wonderful experiences right? Of building something out of nothing, right? Yeah. Of speaking something into life that mm -hmm. is not, and then become something that creates an income for employees and creates another, you know, well, well of creating uh, <laughs> clients for partners and actually providing a, a product or a service for clients. So the first thing I would say is like, if you're an entrepreneur or you think you're an entrepreneur, when you arrive on the land, 
and it's raining, are you going to have the stuff it takes to start a fire in the rain when it comes to business? Mm. I mean, when everything's coming against you, nobody's for you, can you actually start a fire in the rain? Then when the fire started, will you take that fire, bring it to your boat and burn the thing down and say, no matter what, I am going to be successful. I will die here if that's what it takes. I'm going to live to make this happen. And when you cross bridges in your entrepreneurial journey, are you committed to cutting the bridge down? When you cross a bridge, you go from startup to an actual business. When you go from business to a true monumental corporation, are you willing to cut the rope and say like, okay, it's one thing to get on the shore when it's raining and start a fire in business. It's one thing to take that fire and put it on the boat and burn the boat down so I can never leave and without being successful and conquering this island. It's a whole nother thing to come to a bridge, cross the bridge, cut the bridge down, say, I'll never go back again. I am going to succeed. If you don't have that, go get a job. Go work for the, the government. Go do something else because all you're going to do is you're going to lose your marriage. You're going to lose your kids. You're going to lose your faith. You're going to lose your money because this is hard. Mm -hmm. Being an entrepreneur is very, very difficult. Yeah. And if you are not committed to taking the risk over and over and over and over again, there's better options than starting a company. Yeah. Wow. That's tremendously powerful. I mean, like. Gave me the sniffles. That, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really inspiring too. I mean, you know, last question. Yeah. Before we ask how people can get in touch sure. with you. But how will you measure your life? By legacy. 100% by legacy. Um, like, how do I measure Gorilla Branders? Okay. So, like, Gorilla Branders is the last uh, example of my business life. I measure it by two things. A lot of our employees are now working for either partner agencies or our clients. And so, I feel like one thing is that we did the best we possibly could to wind Gorilla Branders down from a massive explosive agency that I decided I did not want to build. I decided I don't, I don't want this. I don't want a big agency. I want to focus on one, two clients at a time and focus on what I'm really great at. And so one is the legacy of like serving and, and showing care for our clients and for our partners by placing gorillas there. The second thing is like community bridges. So you could go on Google and type in gorillas can be bridge builders too, and you'll see the article. And basically we uh, donated a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, time and service to uh, the, one of the largest nonprofits in town. They have 11 brands, community bridges and 10 programs. They're all individual brands. I've never felt a sense of legacy like I did uh, with community bridges. And so for me, my life will be measured by legacy. Like, will I stay married to my wife, Jonna, until one of us die? Will my boys love me, want to be like me, think of me as a hero like I think of my dad? Will, you know, will I have legacy? Like, will I stay faithful to the things that matter most? Um, will I be a faithful man to my spiritual life? You know, will I do well with my money? Will I do well with my influence and my authority in people's lives? Will I use my words to bring life and to lift people up? Will they think back on the words I spoke to them and think, he tore me down, he intimidated me, he dominated me, he made me do things I didn't want to do? Or will they look back at the words I say and say, he spoke life into me. He literally took, in, he took courage and placed it in my soul and encouraged me. Like, what will be my legacy, mm -hmm. right? So for me, the most important thing that I'll measure my life by is that of legacy. And what other people think is one thing. What I think is what really matters. And I think that God's done some pretty cool things in my life, and I'm pretty excited about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've definitely been witness to it. And, and I really want to pre, uh, say thank you for, for yeah. being a guest on our show. It was, it was really an awesome 
uh, interview. T- took a ton of notes, all of which will be yeah, awesome. on the on the show notes. But last and certainly not least, how can people get in touch with you? Um, sure, connect with you, build relationship with you. Yeah, I mean, my name is Ian Utile, I A N U T I L E. So if you type that in Google, you'll see uh, what I'm up to, where to find me. If you're on LinkedIn, uh, certainly connect with me there and start a conversation if there's a reason for it. Um, and then just you'll kind of see what I, what I'm up to. Uh, I think that's the easiest thing by putting my name in Google because then you'll be able to get direct access to what I'm doing today. Um, but I'm not a, shy to give my email. So ianutili at gmail.com. You can feel free to email me. Um, and yeah, so awesome. happy to meet new entrepreneurs. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being a guest on The Impact Entrepreneur Show. Yeah, happy to be here, bro. That was a very fun interview with my friend Ian Utili. I hope you enjoyed that episode and took away some things that you can implement in your life or in your business or in your relationships. I'm going to review the seven principles with you in just one moment. But one of the things that really sticks out in my mind is that quote from Mike Tyson. Every time I stepped in the ring, I was afraid, but I was less afraid than my competition. Confidence is such an important factor when we are in business, when we are trying to have an impact in the lives of others. But you have to be very mindful of protecting your confidence and making sure that it doesn't cross over the line into arrogance because arrogance can damage relationships, damage business, and damage your reputation. So that is something that I am taking away and going to be very mindful of going forward. Real quickly, I wanted to review the seven principles that Ian shared with us on the episode, and we will link to his article in the show notes. Principle number one is don't let your job define you. Principle number two is find a trustworthy partner. Principle number three is sell. Don't seek an investment or a loan, just sell. Selling cures all things. Number four, Be your customer's partner. Don't be a vendor. Principle number five, be generous to employees with equity and bonuses. Principle number six, recruit the right people during the right time. And principle number seven, live your brand loudly. All right, folks, don't just be a listener and a dreamer. Be a doer. Take some of these principles and these ideas we heard about in today's episode and go impact somebody's lives. Last and certainly not least, I want to thank Cody Boyce and his team over at podcastmasters.net for their awesome production and support. Thanks again, guys. Now go make an impact.